Welcome to Decoding Hate. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. Today, we're doing a deep dive into content moderation, from how internet platforms do it to some of the major weaknesses of current approaches. I'm joined by Jillian York, Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a fellow at European University Viadrina's Centre for Internet and Human Rights. Prior to joining EFF, Gillian worked on a number of projects at Harvard's Berkman Klein Centre for Internet and Society, including the OpenNet Initiative. Gillian's new book, Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism, drops in March. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I want to talk to you about how we have gotten to this point, particularly when it comes to content moderation at scale, which is something that I, I know you've talked a lot about it and written a lot about. So how are these platforms doing that? Yeah. Well, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, it would have been a slightly different answer. And that's kind of the incredible thing, uh, the pace at which this area develops. So right now, Well, actually, let me go back and say that when I first started looking at this about a decade ago, there wasn't much written about it at all. Um, There were a few people, notably like Dana Boyd, Zainab Tefekshi, Sarah T. Roberts, mostly women, um, who'd written about this, but kind of, you know, looking at what does it mean for these private companies, these private spaces to be adjudicating speech. Um, But at the time, it wasn't that big of a deal. These platforms had a few million users at best. Um, And so we were really talking about kind of a US problem. Um, Now, as these platforms have become increasingly global, uh, you know, on Facebook, for example, India makes up the, uh, the largest number of people or contributes the largest number of users, let's say. And increasingly, especially in the time of the pandemic, platforms have turned to automation to moderate speech. And so what that means for users is um, really very few options for remedy when there's mistakes made. It means that uh, platforms are reliant on um, machine learning data sets that classify speech. Um, So there is, for example, there was this news earlier this week that uh, Facebook, which has really turned heavily to moderation um, because of their content moderators were essentially sent home during the pandemic. Facebook has turned to, you know, looking at, for example, um, they're overhauling their algorithms that detect hate speech to deprioritize hateful comments that are against majority groups. So against like white people, against men, against um, US Americans. And so I find this really fascinating that we've essentially accepted the idea that machines can make decisions about something that is really sensitive and requires a lot of care and caution, as most governments have acknowledged over the centuries. So you talked about machine learning, and obviously that relies on all kinds of data on which the algorithms can then be trained. What do we know about where that data is coming from? Yeah, it's a great question. And part of the answer is that we don't really know. But let's go back a second and talk about the way that these companies sort of taught the machines how to moderate speech. So when Facebook launched, they were relying on people to do the moderation. Um, In the early days, from what I've best been able to piece together and what others have pieced together is, you know, they had some Stanford folks, some Stanford grads, or maybe even students who were paid reasonable amounts um, to sit there and look at reports. And so, you know, they relied on user reports of what was against their rules. 
Of course, the rules back then, you know, we're talking 2010, 2011, were much less strict than they are today. And so you had these young folks making decisions about, let's say, nudity. So it was very easy to say, okay, yes, this is a pair of breasts, we can't show this, um, and to throw that in the delete pile. Then over the years, as the platform grew, they started hiring third-party companies to handle this job, uh, Most of, mostly in countries like the Philippines, India, Morocco, where labor is fairly cheap. Um, of course, these folks weren't paid well, and they, do, they don't have the same access to resources that, say, a Facebook employee in Palo Alto does. Um, but you know, as these decisions were made, they were building these data sets about, you know, what constituted hate speech. And a lot of this was based on what Mark Zuckerberg thought constituted hate speech. And so as we know from, you know, decades of, of reporting on, or a decade, sorry, of reporting on this, um, he felt that Holocaust denial was not hate speech for a very long time. And it was, in fact, people under him who had to push him on that idea. Um, there were other things that, you know, he thought that women saying, uh, kill all men, which was kind of a common phrasing a couple years ago, meant usually quite sarcastically, um, but that Facebook felt was hate speech. So you had this real imbalance, um, not really based in history or expertise or research about what kind of speech is truly harmful. Um, you know, women saying kill all men is probably not going to incite a riot, whereas Holocaust denial does indeed lead to anti-Semitism. Um, and so I think that, you know, that is what's created these data sets. And now you've got companies relying on these decisions that were made by humans and humans are fallible. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to blame the content moderators. They're not the ones who are truly at fault here. But at the same time, there has been research, particularly um, a film that I, I did a little bit of a contribution to uh, that came out a couple of years ago called The Cleaners, where they interviewed a lot of former content moderators in the Philippines, many of, whom, many of whom have very conservative ideas about sex and sexuality. Um, you know, deeply Catholic country and, you know, no fault of theirs. This is the rules. But we've seen this happen over the years with content moderation where, you know, you've got bias uh, coming from humans and that leads to bias from machines. Well, and I think there was at least, you know, initially this idea that the algorithms would save us, they would take us away from human bias. But of course, algorithms are created by people and they imbue them with priorities and definitions and beliefs and value systems that don't necessarily represent uh, the world of users. We know that there's a vast amount of data that's being collected on us. We don't know exactly where it's coming from or how much they have or what these data sets uh, look like. But there have been complaints from different parts of especially civil society and, and academics that these data sets themselves have problems. They are not representative. But the flip side, of course, is that in order to make them representative, you have to collect even more data. So is that, do you think that's a good avenue to be going down? Or do you think that we just need a course correction of some kind? I think we need a course correction. So, you know, one of the things that you said there, I just wanted to note that, you know, I see kind of two problems with the who's who's making the rules, who's creating the data. One is the lack of diversity, even in a US context. So let's just take the US, for example, we've got a very diverse country. Um, but these companies, the leadership of these companies, the engineering teams, the people making the rules are often white Ivy League grads. Um, they're often male, not as often as they used to be. That's one area where diversity is improved, but still. Um, but then let's broaden it out to the world. And, you know, these companies make decisions that are made for U.S. context, despite the fact of having a global user base. And this leads to a lot of issues with, you know, authoritarian government interference. 
you know, they're not hiring foreign policy experts to do these jobs where I think at this point they probably should be. And they're not really hiring from the global south as much as they should be. Now, back to your point about course correction, I think, yes, there's a couple things that need to happen. I mean, first, I think we need to go back to having a human in the loop of maybe not every decision. There are some areas like child sexual abuse imagery where the machines are going to do a better job and we're sparing humans from having to look at truly disturbing imagery. There are other things like even just nudity in general. If we're going to ban it, I think it's okay to use automation in large part. But the place where we absolutely must ensure that there's always a human in the loop is in the appeals process. And I'm increasingly seeing companies turning away from that, despite recommendations from global civil society to, you know, ensure that there's always a human in that loop. Um, And when it comes to just the basic issue of content moderation, I'm a reasonable person. I do think at this point, it's we have to accept that um, at scale, it's impossible to have humans do this job. And it's perhaps not even fair to have a large number of humans from the global south looking at horrible things so that we in the north don't have to see them. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to political speech, when it comes to um, you know misinformation, uh, satire, there are just lots of things that machines will never be able to do at in the same way that humans can. Well, especially, I mean, we're obviously talking a lot about hate speech, but it's a very contextual exercise. And so to leave it to machines is, as you say, I think the distinction between something like nudity, which again, can be, you know, when you have mothers breastfeeding or breastfeeding groups um, that have obviously popped up and were, I think, uh, if not banned, then taken down for a long time on Facebook. So, you know, it's not to say that that's a, a completely clear example either, but you're at the furthest end of the spectrum from that when you're talking about what constitutes hate speech, because it even states and courts in different parts of Europe and and really all over the world struggle with that definition and with that application. Oh, yeah. I can give you a really great recent example, actually, where um, normally I can't because, right, we we do sign NDAs with companies a lot of the time um, that, you know, give us less freedom to speak about these things. But this one I heard from someone uh, from someone else, so I can, actually can talk about it. Um, so there's one company, uh, I won't name them, but they're reconsidering their treatment of the word Zionist. And as we know, you know, Zionism is a political ideology that is often held by a certain group, a protected class. And so it's a tricky one to adjudicate. Now, it can be used as a slur, absolutely. And it can be anti-Semitic. At the same time, when describing someone's political ideology, it is similar to calling someone a communist, a capitalist, a socialist, right? And so when we look at the way that this is being handled right now, you do see a lot of wrongful or censorious, censorial takedowns um, around this speech, particularly when it comes from certain people, such as Palestinians. And that's really troublesome. Now, at the same time, you've got um, the you've got a couple of lobbying groups that really want to make this word more protected than, say, capitalist or communist. And that, to me, is very troublesome because I think that we do have to consider the difference between a political ideology and an immutable characteristic of an individual. Now, international human rights um, frameworks do this and they do this well. 
Um, I, and, and of course, I'm aware of the history here where this, where, you know, we have had this debate before in the 1960s, um, but we made decisions around this. And now we've got companies reconsidering these decisions based on external lobbying from governments and other groups without any real reference to that prior context. Um, and that's what troubles me about companies. It's not so much about that word, although I, you know, I have my own opinions here, but I think that the point that I'm trying to make is that I don't trust Facebook to know who to look to for these decisions. And I don't trust them to look at the existing history and frameworks um, and to get to do the work to get this right. One of the things that you you have written about and, and others like Kate Crawford has um, written about and called for is having interdisciplinary teams um, to look at not only machine learning, but to make some of these decisions in the hard cases. And, you know, I tend to agree with you that having Facebook make these decisions, especially in a bit of a vacuum in terms of the transparency and the accountability of those decisions is problematic. What, what role do you see for states in this space, especially in putting minimum requirements in place or calling for some sort of, you know, you think about the due diligence frameworks and things that have cropped up in so many other sectors. Is this a space where states can have an impact or should be playing more of a role? It's troubling to me. Um, and, but at, yes, at the same time, I think that there is a role for states here. So let me put it into context by using an example from Germany where I live. Um, so there is difficulty with national level frameworks. And in Germany, we have this law called the Network Enforcement Act um, or NetzDG in German, um, that's DG for English speakers. And it basically requires, I mean, I'm, I'm getting this loose, I'm probably gonna get a tiny fact wrong here, but it basically requires platforms to take down certain reported types of speech, including hate speech, within 24 hours. And so in Germany, Facebook and Twitter and other platforms um, of a certain size, that's the other important point. These platforms hired, um, I believe, paralegals and other, you know, sort of higher level content moderators to do this job. Now, on the one hand, what this means in the German context is that if I report a Nazi on Twitter through the Netzdigge reporting queue, uh, Twitter has to block that person in Germany. Often they'll take it down entirely because Nazis aren't allowed on the platform, but it's great. It means that I can have a better Twitter experience here than you would have in the US. And yet at the same time, let me tell you two interesting problems about NetsDG that I don't even think the platforms and lawmakers are very aware of. Number one is more personal. Twitter has been required to implement this NetsDG reporting queue, which means that I have to speak German and know the law to be able to report anything on the platform. It also means that I can't report harassment very easily because I there's no option for that. So on the one hand, like yeah, on the one hand, I can report hate speech more easily and more fruitfully. On the other hand, harassment is what I deal with on a daily basis as a white woman. And so, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm in kind of a bind. But this one's actually more troubling. Another issue here is that authoritarian states are abusing this by using VPNs into Germany to report people in their countries for violating the rules. Um, you know, and so, for example, if you have we know that the Vietnamese government loves to report people to Facebook for using fake names because it will prompt Facebook to ask those people for ID. And if you're an activist, you don't want to give your identification to Facebook. Why would you trust them? They made a deal with the Vietnamese government. Um, and so 
what what I've learned is that governments like that use VPNs to report people under NetStake A, which means that they'll be more easily blocked or taken down um, if they're violating the terms of service. And so these national level requirements um, really create a much more fractured internet than what I would like to see. Now, at the same time, on a more positive note, I think that EU level um, uh, regulations are potentially a good thing. So, you know, I'm not for more censorship, although I do think that platforms, you know, can and should take down things that they want to take down. But um, the the Digital Services Act upcoming here could potentially be a, a, a path to requiring companies to be more transparent, to, to require remedy um, and appeals in every case. And so that's the sort of thing that I would like to see lawmakers focused on. Um, rather than, you know, pushing companies toward liability for not removing speech, I think that there's trouble there. Um, so I would rather see them pushing companies toward more transparency and more accountability. And I just add, there's one other thing here that I think states could do really well, which is um, require companies to give users more choice over what they see. So now that we have machines classifying all of this information, all of this data, for example, you know, we the machine learning is really good at identifying certain things in imagery. So let's say snakes. Let's say you have a snake phobia and you don't want to see snakes in your feed. You could flip that switch to, to ban snakes from your feed. And the same could be used for certain keywords, certain terms. Um, you know, Twitter has this function. I had I had the terms of certain US politicians muted on Twitter for years just because I didn't want to see the discourse about them. Um, and so if platforms gave us more choice around that, then that would also allow people who are more conservative to block out things that they don't want to see and people who you know don't want to see any kind of hate speech to not see it. But I think that some of it needs to be out in the open because otherwise we push it underground, we push it to parlor. And while you know that might be satisfying, it's not necessarily the way to stop real life hate crime from happening. I was watching Kate Crawford, who I adore, um, wonderful. <laughs> never met her, but I adore her. And I was watching her, uh, the trouble with bias presentation from a few years back. And one of the points that she made, which I think is a really good one. And I've, I've seen you make this as well. Um, I think at Republic, uh, in a talk you gave about what kind of, what is the world we want to see? And I think it's kind of lost in the shuffle because there are so many pressing issues to deal with, but do we want content moderation and and the internet itself to reflect the world we want to see, or do we want it to reflect the world as we have it? And it's something I struggle with because I go back and forth and I, I can imagine working in this space, you have similar, a similar push pull about, you know, on the one hand, I would like it to be better for, for instance, women, for minority groups, for migrants than it is in, in the real world. You know, you want it to be a safe place for them, but at the same time, are we fixing the actual socio-technical problems at the expense or, you know, and sort of sweeping it under the rug. Yeah. I mean, I think that as a society or as societies at the moment, we're really prone toward narrow and binary thinking. Um, so, you know, binary thinking just being kind of black and white thinking, not looking at um, questions like, you know, what are, what are the best ways to stop real life hate from happening? And so, you know, it's a lot cheaper and easier to address online speech than it is to address um, primary education. To overhaul the entire education system would cost billions of dollars, take years to do. Um, but to say, you know, Facebook, you've got to take down hate speech, it offers a quick fix, but does it necessarily solve the underlying problem? And I would say no. Um, now, it does solve an immediate short-term problem, as you said, for marginalized communities. And I don't think that we should overlook that. That's, of course, very important. 
um, you know, and I understand I often get criticism for not thinking about that first. But on the other hand, you know, I am also thinking about my friends in countries like Egypt, where the state is the censor and the state does push these companies to censor even more. And often the people who are allowed to speak the least on these platforms are groups like Muslim communities, um, Palestinians, uh, you know, other groups that are systematically marginalized on a global level. Um, and so you see things like um, Palestinian pushback against the Israeli state being censored as hate speech because Israel decided it is. Or you see Muslims being censored as terrorists because the US government decided that they're illegitimate um, or that their cause is illegitimate. And that's what really worries me about this is that on the one hand, yes, Platforms very much at this point understand things like Black Lives Matter, and they will be able to potentially get that right. But are they going to get it right for Muslims? Probably not. Um, and so I think that all of the groups, the civil rights organizations that are thinking about this, a lot of them are American. And while I very much respect their work, and I think what they do is incredibly important, they don't often have the broad perspective, the global perspective that's needed to ensure that this is done in a way that impacts all groups, not just them. You know, when you look at the user base of Facebook, the vast majority, the largest sector of that, of, of users is in India. And yet a lot of the policies, a lot of the thinking, as you say, is done by mainly Americans and a lot of whom are in Silicon Valley, which I think is probably exactly why you picked that as the title of your book, right? Is that it's the Silicon values that have been imbued throughout this. So I want to talk to you about your comment um, about Twitter and the harassment that you get, because I think it, it links up with what we've been talking about, about, um, you know, the treatment of, of Muslims and, and the treatment of, of other groups. How big of an issue is this? Because it seems to me that the differential effects of a lot of these content moderation policies, while it's sort of talked about, I don't know how much of a focus it's actually had. As a human rights lawyer, that to me seems like a very, a very big warning sign that that should be the st sort of starting premise. And we work back from that is how are these processes affecting different groups differently? You know, it's incredible because there has been a great deal of work on the ways in which these processes affect Muslim communities and Arab communities specifically. I can't speak to India as well as I can to uh, like the Middle East and North Africa. So I'll focus there. And say that, you know, I've worked with researchers and activists from that region for a decade, and they've done incredible research and work that has informed my own. I tried to amplify their work in my book. Um, but what I can say is that I think that Muslim communities are the most affected by content moderation, bar none. And the ways in which they're impacted are various. Um, one of the biggest ones, of course, is the terrorism restrictions. So to give one example, there's this news network uh, in Palestine called Al-Quds News Network. And somebody, some group decided in the US that they are maybe affiliated with Hamas. Now they swear that they're not, they're independent. Some of them are, you know, some of the people who work there are born and raised in the US. And yet they've been systematically censored on these platforms because some group pressured the platforms to do that. Now, once you get tarred with that brush, it becomes a legal issue because the way that a US law works around foreign designated terrorist groups is that there is the potential for liability for these platforms if they provide material support to them. Now, there's still a legal question around whether 
providing a platform for speech is material support. But we've seen the chilling effects of some of the cases like the Holy Land Five and other groups like that. And so the the potential for it's there and these companies don't want to take that risk. So, you know, to give a really, really ridiculous example from some something like eight, eight, nine years ago, there was a point where Google was blocking all ads in the Persian language because of the potential that Iranians uh, who were under U.S. sanctions could put an ad there. Never mind the fact that Los Angeles has, you know, probably as many Persian speakers as Tehran does, but you know, in order to protect themselves from liability, some lawyer said, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth considering this other group. Um, And that's the problem is because, you know, the problem for me is that these companies will consider the, the, the edge cases in the United States, but they won't consider the edge cases abroad because, you know what, it's just not worth it. Or you see changes when advertisers, for instance, start talking about pulling money. You see the stop hate for profit and the impact that it has had. Uh, You see Mark Zuckerberg's position on Holocaust denial having changed. But of course, the interest groups and and the power doesn't always and often doesn't rest with already marginalized groups. Um, And so where is their champion? You know, I mean, civil society is doing a lot of work, but are they having the same impact? And I know that there is increasingly at least space for it. They're being heard more than perhaps they were previously. But is it is it enough? And I, I, I don't know what the, what the answer is, but I, I suspect it's no. I, I don't think it's enough. It's, you know, it's really, it, I've seen like civil rights groups in the US and, and I don't want to disparage them. It's not their fault, but they can get a meeting with the highest level, you know, folks at Facebook. And yet like the folks that I know in Egypt and Tunisia and the Middle East can't get anyone to talk to them at all. You know, that these companies have dozens of policy staffers in DC and California, and they've got like one person in charge of the entire Middle East and North Africa. Facebook has one person in charge of all of Africa. I mean, that to me is just shocking. I know it's not the biggest user base, but at the same time, you've got a, a continent with, I mean, more countries than any other continent, but also, I think that's true, um, but also more languages than any other continent. And yet, there's nobody really thinking about it there. Um, and so, you know, as the next billion people come online, who's going to be vouching for them? Who's going to be standing up for them? I mean, we, we've just, we've already seen the extraordinary potential for harm in countries like India and Myanmar. And I really, really worry that they're not thinking ahead, you know, just like our leaders aren't thinking ahead for the next pandemic. I think that these companies are not Sadly, to you know, they're not thinking ahead for the next potential genocide. Well, and that was exactly the point I was going to make. Is is it will it be reactive again, or will it be proactive and preventative and and forward looking? And uh, I think that remains a big a big issue. And you know, I, I got to say, like Facebook and Twitter both have put into place human rights teams over the past couple of years, and they're great people. They're doing wonderful work, but they've been given no power by these companies to really do the job that they need to do. And so I don't blame them. I really blame the folks at the top. So one of the things that you have written about, and we've touched on it today a lot, is whether we should really be leaving this to these private companies who you've, I think, called unaccountable censors. Do you think that self-regulation is just a necessary evil? Or do you think that it is the sort of the path forward here? I'm, you know, this this question still plagues me, to be perfectly honest. And I think maybe the fact that I don't have a ready answer is the right answer. I think anyone who's overly confident about this question is 
probably not looking at it in a complex enough way. So on the one hand, allowing states to do this job is incredibly troubling to me. Um, There's no reason that I would trust the U.S. government, whether it's Trump, Biden, Obama, Clinton, any of them. I don't have any faith that the U.S. will get this right. I also don't have a lot of faith that Europe will get this right. I think that there's a tendency here to focus more on speech than action. So, you know, for example, in, in Berlin, we know that there's a lot of infiltration of the police force by Nazis. And yet they're so focused on speech over police brutality. So that to me, you know, takes away the like, should we trust states to do this? I don't know. On the other hand, self-regulation means that we're relying on these unaccountable actors to do it. And so, you know, I think that there's ways to have the state regulate how decisions are made by companies. And again, focusing on process is probably the one answer that we can really all agree on, no matter where we come down on the speech issues. I think, you know, that I would trust companies to self-regulate a bit more if they were required to have more diversity within their ranks. If CEOs were required to turn over every few years the way that politicians do. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's been doing this job. He's he's like two years younger than me. And he's been doing this job since he was, what, 22, 21? I don't know. But how can you learn when you're in that role for that many years and sequestered from the general public? You know, he's a boy king, as as I think Kate Lossie put it years ago. And so I that worries me. On the other hand, you know, you've got CEOs like Jack Dorsey, who've made a lot of mistakes. And yet, I've watched him over the past couple years, handing over more of the reins to women and people of color at the company. I've seen him apologize in public for mistakes. And so I see a person who's in a learning and growth process. Is he still getting a lot of things wrong? God, yeah. But we can't put them all in one box. And so I think that when we're thinking about self-regulation, it really is company by company. And often the answer that I come to after all of this is that I would rather have self-regulation than, than you know, state censorship. But I would also like to see much more competition in the space, more companies, uh, more types of moderation, you know, different companies with different rules so that people have much more choice about where they go. I think it's a perfect answer. <laughs> I, I think it, it's I think it's the one that makes the most sense because just as you say, companies aren't all created equal. Of course, states and, and governments and the way that they treat speech and the way that they treat their citizens is not equal either. So I think having certain at least processes in place makes a lot of sense. To that end, um, one of EFF's initiatives with others, um, and and something I I think you've worked a lot on, is the Santa Clara principles. And so I was hoping that you could give us a primer on on what those principles require and what impact they've had so far. Sure. And I'm going to give you a a quick, cute history, too, because I love this. Sarah T. Roberts organized, she's a professor at UCLA and the author of Behind the Screen. She's done incredible research on content moderation. She organized a conference in 2017 called All Things in Moderation, which is still, I think, the best conference to ever happen on the topic. And at that conference, I we had dinner one night, group of us um, activists and academics. And I said, you know, we're all going to this other conference in February. We should have a meeting. Everyone said, yeah, let's do it. So I organized this meeting and then I got sick and I couldn't come. And so this meeting happened. And the next thing I know, they're texting me and going, hey, we came up with this set of principles. And I was like, wait, what? That was my meeting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was my meeting and I couldn't be there. And you guys did all this work. So the truth is that I wasn't in the room. I wasn't in the room where it happens, to quote Hamilton. But I did get to have input into the final principles. And we released them in uh, February 2018. And then that summer, we were um, 
I got together with Article 19 and Ranking Digital Rights and uh, the Center for Democracy and Technology, and we organized this letter to Mark Zuckerberg uh, calling, on, a, calling for, on Facebook to institute appeals. And this letter managed to get like something like 140 signatories. And since then, it's created this, this coalition that now works together. So let me, I'll go back and explain the principles real quick. It's really simple. It's three things, numbers, notice, and appeals. And what we want to see companies do is be far more transparent about their numbers and especially error rates. That's something that gives us a lot of information about how they're doing on content moderation. We want to see them give notice to every user. So when something is going to be removed or demonetized, whatever the action is, that the user receives an explanation about it so that they can understand how to change course and correct their behavior, so to speak. Um, and then, of course, appeals, which we've talked plenty about, um, but we want to make sure that every user can appeal in every circumstance. And the only exceptions that I'm okay with are child sexual abuse imagery and spam. And so, you know, now we're looking at, um, we just did this expansion process where we opened uh, the floor to public comment. We received something like 50 really well-written submissions from everybody from like law groups in Kenya to individuals in Italy. It was fascinating. And now we're about to go into this process of analyzing and potentially expanding or coming out with a new set of principles. The next stage of the process, the writing stage, will be open to our basically everyone in this coalition who would like to participate. That's wonderful. And I think really speaks to this cross-sectional diverse input, right? This user-led, civil society-led initiative. So what has the impact been? I, I know a lot of companies have agreed to them. Have they agreed in principle or have they implemented? So sadly, only one company has implemented them, but I want to give that company a lot of credit and that's Reddit. Reddit has just, they weren't, they had only fulfilled, I think, two out of three uh, when we started the process. But after conversations with them, they were so open and they really wanted to get it right. And now they're, they fully implemented them. Facebook only gets notice right. Uh, so they're still missing the other two. And Twitter is, uh, Twitter gets appeals right, but not notice or uh, appeals transparency. However, um, I would, I think I'm looking at the numbers right now and it was like, one, two, three, I think it's more than 10 companies have endorsed the principles. And so we're still pushing them to be accountable and fully implement those principles. It's interesting to me that they are all getting different things right and different things wrong. You would sort of think if they could harness their joint power and and work together somehow on, on best principles, that would that would do it. Yeah. I mean it's amazing. They'll, you know, they'll come together and all these companies come together and work together on things like combating extremist speech on their platforms, which, you know, often results in censorship of marginalized communities. But they won't work together on stuff like this. And I I gotta say, I think that most of them have their priorities wrong. So Facebook, for instance, has just come out with their newest transparency report. And I think it is better than previous ones in that it gives more information about, for instance, how much hate speech they took down, which I think was 22.1 million pieces of what their terms of service and their, their community guidelines define as hate speech between July and September 2020. But there's no real breakdown beyond that. So is that one of the areas you think for further development or for, for civil society to be pushing? 
Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was pulling up because um, we did. We wrote a blog post about this called "Thank You for Your Transparency Report." Here's everything that's missing. I read that; it was very good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I got to give huge credit to Svev and Ve, who I worked with on it. But yeah, I mean, really, our point was that content moderation and its impact is contextual, and so the reporting of numbers and percentages give us some helpful information, but it doesn't tell us why or how these decisions are made. And that to me is the troublesome part. Um, and you know, often these companies refuse to give us the error rates as well. And their reasoning is that sort of special sauce argument. Oh, we, if we gave you error rates, then company or then, then users and, and, and authoritarian governments would be able to cheat the system. And I just don't buy that. Yeah, I have a hard time with it. Because I think at least some of the information could be given out or even just for study purposes, right? Or for oversight purposes. I just think it's obviously in their interest to say we can't tell you any more than what we've already told you because it allows for, well, it basically makes oversight very difficult, if not impossible. So one of the things that you have really pushed for is a greater role for society, for users. And you've referenced it even here today of, you know, not only more diversity in the platforms that users can access, but also to allow your users to curate what they want to see. So we've talked a lot about the role of states uh, and the role of internet intermediaries and, and these big private companies. What role do you see, uh, or would you like to see civil society and, and users playing? Yeah, so I mean, I would like to see, you know, I think like Facebook's oversight board is an interesting concept. I'm not quite ready to comment on it because they're just beginning their their decisions, but I would like to see the actual board of directors have users have seats for users in it. You know, why do we why does it need to be filled up with billionaires? Why is Peter Thiel on Facebook's board? I mean, you have a literal white supremacist on the board of Facebook when you could open up seats to users and have those be elected or whatever. There's a number of ways to do that. Um, I think Twitter is doing some interesting work right now with uh, open comments around certain things. So right now they have an open comment period around how verification gets handed out. And they're allowing comment from the whole public. I think, I don't know if you have to have a Twitter account to submit, but even if it's just to users, I think it's still a great idea. Twitter also has their trust and safety council, which is made up of civil society organizations. Um, I think all of these are great ideas. And I like the innovation that's coming from Twitter. And I think Twitch is another company that's doing stuff like this. Um, more of that, please. I think also, you know, there are also other examples like Microsoft Research. Um, there's still some, I, you know, there are things I find troublesome about it. But at the same time, Microsoft Research has done some incredible work um, that has informed Microsoft's decision making on policy. And so if we are to incorporate not just users, but also academic institutions and civil society organizations in meaningful ways, not in ways that co-opt them, then I do think that we're there is some potential to get a broader cross-section of society. And look, we're never going to get it perfect, but that's not a reason to not try. I love that. I think that's exactly right. So your book is coming out in March, which is very exciting. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> and I don't know if it has a secret sauce <laughs> so that you can't tell us much about it. But I know that it calls, you apparently call for a user powered movement to demand change. So what can you tell us without obviously giving too much away about this user powered movement, which I think would be a wonderful revolution to take place? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, the real answer there is that um, I, what I've tried, I think this book is kind of a love letter to the movements around this. Um, you know, it's it's more documentation than it is polemic. I document a lot of the history around activism and content moderation. And so the idea for a user powered movement is something that I'm promoting, but at the same time, I'm not the one to decide what that means. I think that a user powered movement means incorporating user ideas into that process. And so, yeah, I've got those ideas such as opening up board seats, creating advisory boards, not just, you know, Facebook's oversight board, which is not truly oversight or a board. Uh, but what I want to do is turn that microphone to the users and to the other civil society groups and academics from all over the world that I've worked with and I'm currently working with um, to really answer that question. And so I think that, you know, some people will be disappointed for this if they're looking for easy answers or disappointed by this if they're looking for easy answers. But in the final chapter of the book, I think that I'm kind of handing the mic to the next person and saying, okay, like India, speak up, Middle East, speak up. And hopefully I've named enough people in <laughs> somewhere throughout the book and the acknowledgements um, to, to be able to do that. And so, yeah, I, I realize that for some, that's going to be a disappointing answer. But my hope is that I'm opening up more space for users and researchers and others, activists to be able to speak up about what they want that movement to look like. I can't imagine anyone would be disappointed by that because I think it makes sense to say I one person shouldn't dictate what this looks like, which is kind of how we've gotten here when you have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg making these kinds of decisions as a 21 year old. And and I don't know how old he is now. And I kind of don't want to know. <laughs> I mean, I, I look back at some of the things I was writing six, seven years ago, and I'm, I acknowledge now that I was wrong. Um, and a lot of times I was writing these sharp pieces saying, this is what Facebook should do. And, you know, the book really, I, I, at one point in the book, I think I confessed that I got Gamergate completely wrong. You know, it's 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 a bit of a confessional, but at the same time, I think that that's what we have to be doing. And I don't see that kind of growth happening from a lot of these policymakers at companies, or for that matter, lawmakers. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of the focus is on what can regional organizations do? What can states do? What should these private corporations be doing? All of which has a role to play, and, and it's not to take away from that at all, but there's another very important group here, um, and it and it is users, right? And they, while they can't yet vote with their feet in the same way that you can in democracies, and you don't like what this elected official is doing, well, I'm I'm going to choose somebody else. I think that bottom up approaches make a lot of sense and aren't getting the same amount of attention, and so I think it's a really important perspective. So, what are some of the approaches other than the ones that you've highlighted on Twitter, for instance, that make you feel hopeful about the direction that we're, we're going in. Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I keep using Twitter as an example. And I, I think, you know, some people will be upset by that because they are still getting so many things blatantly wrong. But I, I have a lot of faith in the fact that they've, you know, they've built out their human rights team, they've opened up these comment periods, they've got a CEO and some high level staff who are willing to admit when they're wrong, willing to take phone calls from people like me on a regular basis. That isn't true of other companies. I mean, YouTube has almost completely closed ranks to the point where researchers can't get a hold of them. They're unresponsive to a lot of people at this point. And so I think that that's a big first step. But I think we also have to look to what smaller companies are doing. 
um, not only Reddit, I mean, which is, I, I think they've got a fantastic policy team, but you've also got much smaller companies that can't even afford that kind of policy team, but that are trying to create platforms that have things like forward consent. So every time the rules change, users consent to them. Broader user choice, less algorithmic decision making. Um, I think these are all great steps forward. And I hope that we can at least create a regulatory environment that lets a million platforms bloom. Of course, you know, at the same time, we should be wary of seeing competition as an answer to the problems of content moderation, because a lot of times, you know, you, you can't take your network with you. And so if you have built a network on Facebook or Twitter, you're still going to want to use that platform. Um, and so we do have to focus on making these better. Every time I see one of these boycott Facebook movements, I get frustrated because as much as I would love to boycott Facebook, I would never see another party invitation in Berlin again, um, you know, post pandemic. Uh, and so I think that we have to look at it from all of these different perspectives. Thank you so much for your insights. We can't wait for Silicon Values to come out and to hopefully, as you say, pass the baton to the, the next group that's going to come and make all the difference. I mean, that's the thing is that we all, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of someone and we're all paving a path for someone else. And, you know, it, it takes a long time to recognize that. But at a certain point, um, you know, it, it is about recognizing your for, for me, it's, you know, layers and layers of privilege, but also the privilege that I have to have had this job that I have and to be to have been able to write this book. Um, and I just hope that I can extend that privilege to someone else. In the next few episodes, we'll look more closely at some of the challenges we've identified today, including the need for greater context in content moderation, the lack of diversity and global input in these new halls of power and the need for stronger transparency, oversight, and accountability. I hope you'll join us. My thanks to Gillian York for her insights and to the OSCE representative on freedom of the media for the funding which made this podcast series possible. Dan Retka wrote and performed the music for this series. For more on today's topics, including a link to pre-order Gillian's upcoming book, or to share your comments and reactions, visit our website, decodinghatepod.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>